Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Jason Evanish. Can you tell people more about what you do? Sure. So I'm Jason, a um, uh, mix of a product, product person and a founder. Um, currently, I have a startup called Lighthouse, which helps people be better managers, because uh, it turns out there's a lot of people that could use help with that. Um, and so for the last probably four years, been doing tons of research, both from talking to managers directly, as well as looking at the latest management research and reading a lot of books, not just on leadership, but also on things like stress and uh, understanding the human condition, I guess you could say, because all of that comes into play because we don't manage robots. We manage other human beings that you have to understand and work well with. Mm. And what are the biggest sources of stress when it comes to that management relationship? I mean, I, I think the list is infinite. There's always different forms of stress. You know, there can be tension between two coworkers who are vying for the same promotion. Uh, there can be tension between people of very different personalities where one person prefers indirect communication. The other person is very blunt and direct. Um, stress can be created uh, because of working hours. Stress can be created because, uh, because you're unconfident in the work that you're doing. Stress can be created because you don't feel like your boss is listening to you. There's an uh, infinite number of ways that stress can be created, but the beauty of it is that uh, a good manager is able to be kind of a pressure relief valve on those sorts of things. And, you know, some stress is healthy, but some stress is not so healthy. And so as a manager or any kind of leader, even if you're just leading yourself, uh, you want to manage and make sure that you both have a positive mindset about stress as well as then try and mitigate the stress that um, is less healthy. And what about like managers giving their employees a certain type of positive stress? Because most people talk about negative stress, but what about positive stress? Yeah. So positive stress, I think, can be a lot of different things. It can be uh, an ambitious goal set by the team. Hey, we're going to try and, you know, boost conversion on the marketing site by 100%. You know, how do we do that? That's super ambitious. But by having the exercise of putting that kind of pressure on the team to, uh, or stress to, try and achieve an audacious goal. Very often you can achieve things you wouldn't have thought of otherwise because the second you have an audacious goal or you have um, uh, a miraculous or heroic thing you need to pull off, it, it forces this form of unbound creativity where instead of saying, well, we can do these incremental things and mm. we'll get a little bit better and we'll hit that simple goal. Mm. Uh, instead, you kind of have to say, well, wait a second, if we're going to do something super ambitious here, going to go back completely to the drawing board or do something totally crazy because now every option's on the table in order to achieve this. Wow. That's really interesting. And why did you start Lighthouse? Uh, it was one of those things where it was an idea that was kind of stuck in the back of my head and I just, I could not do it. Um, mm. I've always been passionate and interested in leadership. My father uh, ran a business for about 20 years. He recently retired, but when I started Lighthouse, he was still cranking along and, you know, he ran an accounting firm where the average tenure is about three, maybe four years at a firm. Mm. And my dad's company, their tenure was 17 years. Mm. And so it was really cool 
as I was growing up, seeing the different things he was doing that made it so people wanted to basically stay for the whole careers. My dad's number one uh, cause of turnover for his staff is retirement. Huh. Um, and so that was always inspiring, but I also just always found like leadership's one of those things is just like intrinsically interesting to me. Like I think everybody has those handful of topics where it's like, you see an article on the internet, you have to read it. You see a book out that people are talking about on the subject and you just know you have to pick up a copy. For mm -hmm. me, that's leadership. You know, whether it's reading about the latest article about how a team won a championship um, or it's uh, a story about uh, a company and like something they worked through, uh, it, you know, those sorts of things always have captured my attention and been really fascinating to me. So mm -hmm. the opportunity to take that interest and also have a business for it um, was just really great founder market fit, you could say. Mm -hmm. And how did you start? Like, how did, did you just start interviewing other managers or did you already have the idea and start testing it or? Uh, so I had an original idea that's ended up being a very small part of the product, but that part of actually no one cared that much about. Uh -huh. um, but what I ended up doing was I wrote a couple of blog posts about why it was hard to be a manager and like common problems that if you're a manager, you'd just be nodding your head along like, yep, deal with yeah. that. Yep, that's uh -huh. a problem. Uh, and I put a little form at the bottom and said like, Hey, if you'd like help with some of these kinds of problems, I'd love to talk to you. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I promise I'll share the results of whatever I learned. Hmm. And I ended up talking to about 40 different managers doing that. And I started noticing patterns where experienced managers were like, I know I should do this, but I never have enough time to do it right. Or I'd really like hack the system together. And then you had new managers that were like, I want to be better than the managers I've had, or I want to do this. I have this better system. And um, it turns out the things that these new people wanted to learn and things, the experienced ones were like, I'm trying to cobble together a system and wish it was more automated were mm. a lot of the same things. And that's what lighthouse became. Mm. So you, you built the software to help that management process basically. Correct. Yeah. The idea was to give them a workflow tool with the right kind of coaching and guidance to nudge them along the way. And then you do that coaching or do you have employees who also do that? No, it's all, it's all automated. So oh. it's like nudges and intercom it's uh, drip email series. Um, we sold an email-based program called 30 Days of Leadership recently that was teaching people one actionable insight every day. Um, mm -hmm. So we've always tried to be very scalable with it. Um, I've never really enjoyed consulting personally, and mm -hmm. it do, it's not really a scalable thing. Your time mm -hmm. is X number of hours, and there's X, Y hours in the day. So I try to avoid that. So everything we do, we try to be scalable in it um, and say, how can we help everybody at, at the same time or you know, uh, when they're at that point in their journey? That's really interesting. And so at, are you guys remote? Are you guys a remote company? Or? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we're spread out all over. So I moved to New York because there was nothing that forced me to be in the Valley. My, um, my business partner slash co-founder is, um, uh, is in Danville outside Walnut Creek. So like he commutes into the city a bunch. We used to meet face to face there. Now we're doing calls. And then, you know, we have some offshore people all over Florida, the Ukraine, Philippines, all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff to, to make different parts of the business go. Um, how do you how do you see this trend towards remote co-work or remote working uh, influence creativity and stress inside an organization? Oh, it has a massive impact. Uh, I think that being a leader in general is harder when it's remote. There's so much you miss out on when you can't just like turn to your right and your team members right there. Mm. Uh, and especially with stress and creativity, I think there's a reason that most good remote companies spend a bunch of time flying people in to meet each other, whether it be a company wide hey, retreat together and they all meet and spend, excuse me, like a week together. Or it's the, hey, this team needs to meet. We're all going to go to this city and the team's going to hash out stuff for a couple of days. Mm. I think that when it comes to creativity, all being in the same room together, there's just some alchemy that comes down to like, essentially, I think it's human evolution. Like solving problems together face to face is something we've had to do since the days when we were worried about being hunted by wolves or like bears mm. or something. Mm. Um, 
And, and so there's certain ma magic in being face to face where essentially I think there's added stress when you're remote, where you're kind of on your own to solve a problem mm -hmm. or you're trying to just do a video chat here and recreate some of that, which sometimes can work, I think for smaller problems. Um, but for bigger ones can be much more challenging and either you need to put it off till the next time you're face to face or you're ending up with like maybe the 80, 20 solution. You don't get to the absolute best one because you don't get as much of that feedback and interaction. Um, and then I think on the stress side of things, obviously stress is just a little bit different. There's less stress from the perspective of like, you don't have an open office space with people beating down on you all the time. Um, if you're remote, but you also don't have that camaraderie as much. And so it's a little harder to recreate the stress relief side of that, where you're bonding with people, but you have less of the, of the stress of too many people and too many noises around you. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's, it's like trade-offs. You lose some uh, good things and you lose some bad things. Mm. How personally have you adapted to it? Um, I mean, personally, I love offices. Um, yeah. I wish I could be in office always yeah. with people, but the unit economics aren't there. When you can have an engineer offshore for five times cheaper or 10 times cheaper than a Silicon Valley engineer, and they can do anything better than five times uh, mm. lower, lower or less work or mm. 10 times less or lower work, um, you know, you have to make that trade off and you, you, I think if you really go in with eyes open on this stuff, you realize that there are trade-offs and it won't be as good. But if, if the numbers add up and it's like, you know, 0.1 plus 0.5 plus 0.7 plus 0.8 actually equals like 1.7, that's better than one. So you're mm -hmm. suddenly like, well, you know what? The sum of the parts is better. And so even with the tax or the extra stress or the different changes, it's still worth doing it. And then you just figure out as you go and try to try to obviously improve it as you get into the situation. Mm. What are some of the stresses that you faced when you've started to offshore work and cultural stuff? Like what were the main things that, that were the hardest in the beginning that you figured out? Uh, I mean, I would say definitely communication, yeah. um, you know, depending on people's communication style. Some people love for you to like check in and ping them on the regular other people much more like to do it in batches. And so mm. like figuring out Slack etiquette for different people can be important. Mm. Obviously time zones come into play. Mm. Um, and then obviously communication mediums, like one of the per people on my team, I actually DM on Twitter a lot because uh -huh. that's where they and I happen to be more often. And uh -huh. so I'm like, all right, you know what? We'll, we'll do a lot of conversation there. If we scaled up and the team was much bigger than we are, uh, we may not do that, but for right now it's okay. So you know what? We'll just go with it. Mm. And did you have to like ask him to figure out what was the better means of communication or did it just happen organically? Uh, it was her, but um, her, yeah. it was, it just kind of naturally happened. Um, I actually recruited them off of Twitter. So I think that's mm. part of it. I read mm. there, they write for the lighthouse blog and I saw some of her writing and was like, this is excellent. Um, you know, do, it looks like you do contracting. You're looking for more work. And she was like, Oh yeah. Like, I love your blog. I would love to write for you. Uh, and, you know, obviously we took it then to email and like drew up a contract and like talked about frequency of writing and we do all the topics in Google Docs and things like that. Mm -hmm. But a certain part of the conversation just continued to organically happen there. And so one of my rules as a manager is always to say, try to adapt as much as you can to your team, meet them where they are for at least some things. Mm -hmm. So whether that be, hey, some people like to do one-on-ones in an office. Some people like to do a walk and talk and some people, um, you know, would prefer to go get coffee somewhere like mm -hmm. small things like that can mean a lot or this, you know, when you're remote, you go and say, Hey, you know what? They're already communicating with me on Twitter. Like, why don't I just ping them there? I'll probably get more responsiveness, which is what I want. Yep. Um, and in the meantime, it'll make them more comfortable, not feel like I'm asking them like, you know, when you ask as a manager and you want people to do things, you're obviously creating a little bit of stress sometimes. Mm why add an extra tax to that? Because you're forcing them to communicate in a place you want 
versus mm-hmm. a place they're comfortable. If it's a mm-hmm. huge issue, obviously you still want to standardize it. Or if there's a good reason for you to be in the medium you're in, obviously you still want to be there. But when it's things where it could be either way, it's not that big a difference for you. You totally should try and like accommodate the employee. Mm-hmm. So what is uh, going back to talking about leaders because leaders are incredibly important for cre- creativity. What are mm-hmm. the most important for things for a leader to work on when they make the switch from an individual contributor to a, to a leader? Um, so I really like this quote uh, uh, that I heard um, uh, once. And it was basically the idea like when you become a leader, it's about changing your mindset from me to we. Mm. And the whole idea behind that, I think, is the biggest mindset shift because you suddenly are thinking about others and not just yourself. So it's not what works for you. It's what works for your team. It's not what you can output in your work hours. It's how do I get more from my team in the hours that we have or how do I get better results from my team? So Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually a really big mindset shift because it's not just about, oh, I need to badger five people to get their stuff done. It's more like, how do I get the most out of how do I get the most out of Stuart? How do I get the most out of Joe? How do I get the most out of Susan? Like each individual person is their own unique puzzle. And then the whole team is also a puzzle you have to fit together. Mm. And so as a transition to leader, instead of just focusing on like, how can I be the most productive human? It's now, how can I make them the most productive? And often it's you as a servant, a servant leader. I'm a big Mm. fan of servant leadership mindset. It's how can I be in service to them to get the most out of each individual person? Since you started to adopt this, have you noticed any kind of correlated benefits of adopting that mindset in your own personal life of this kind of like servant kind of mentality and stuff like that and just giving first? Oh, yeah. I mean, your team, when you are a leader that shows you care and listen to your people, they will run through walls for you. So, you know, everything from, you know, uh, asking your team to take a pay cut because finances are really tight and they're actually willing to do it Mm. or asking them to take on a project that's a bit out of their comfort zone. They're more likely to do if they trust you, um, mm. you know, or just taking your feedback and coaching and saying, Hey, this isn't up to par. I want this at a higher standard and then being willing to listen and come back with something better. And then you're like, well, great. Now that's the new standard. I want you to live up to that every time seeing them do that. And then seeing that output continue to be higher and get better and better is essentially your, your reward. Because when you take great people and you treat them well, they only become more and more valuable to your company as they become more familiar and comfortable with what you do. Mm. Can you talk more about how to build trust among employees and um, among the people you manage and stuff like that? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, the way that you build trust is to show you care, um, care about them as a human. You know, if your people are married with kids, you should know the names of their kids and you should, and their spouse. Mm. Um, If they're not married and they're single, you know, you should have a general idea of like, uh, one of the things I love that Marissa Meyer talks about is um, finding out what your employee's rhythm is. Mm. And so when she talks about um, rhythm, what it means is this idea that like, what's this thing like you do once or twice a month or once a week or whatever. What is this thing where like the week or the month is just better and you're happier if you get to do this thing? Mm. It may be a potluck with friends. It may mm. be dinner with your kids. It may be your daughter's dance recital. Maybe your son's basketball game. It may be a soccer team you play on with friends on Thursday nights. Whatever it is, understanding what that is is super important as a manager because you don't want to have people miss that. Mm. You want to try to accommodate it at least a little bit because when you do that, then they're willing to accommodate your ass. So, Mm. you know, you make sure that Stuart gets to leave early to go to his friend's potluck next week. Well, he is much more likely to work late two or three other nights that week, knowing that you're willing to be nice and and accommodating and let them go do that other thing. 
So mm-hmm. I think like building that trust and that foundation of rapport comes down to getting to know what's important to people, what their drivers are, showing you care about them as a human, not just a robot that outputs work mm-hmm. um, is how you build that trust. And then over time, when you show that, you know, you're on the same team, you're not selling them out, you're giving them credit for the work they do. Those are all things that pay into kind of that emotional savings account um, of mm-hmm. what, uh, what are things they show that you're doing things to appreciate them that then you can cash in when you need to make a hard ask of people like a pay cut or like a comp change or just simple things like, Hey, I need you to work late on this or, Hey, I know this came in last minute and I know you wanted to leave, but like, I'd really love your help on this for an hour before you go. Mm -hmm. Are, do you guys in your own company or the companies that you work with, do you help people set their OKRs? No, we stay away from OKRs actually. Why? Um, because most of what we do is focus on the soft skills and the service of the employee and OKRs are generally your core work responsibilities. And so what we found was it was a good product border, um, for us to say, Hey, you know what? OKRs are something you're thinking about every day. OKRs are often tied directly to your project project management tool. Mm. And so if it's already in there, then we want to focus on all the stuff that isn't that project. Mm. You know, maybe it's some feedback and coaching related to it. Um, but for the most part, we want to focus more on, hey, what are your career goals? Are you growing in your existing role or are you aiming for a promotion in a year or two? And hey, how are you feeling? How's the team performing? How can we do better? You know, are you overworked, underworked, bored, stressed? How are you feeling? Like all of those things generally don't get any time or attention from a leader. And so we want to say, hey, that once a month in a one-on-one, that every two weeks in your one-on-one, we're going to focus on all those other things because we know that everybody knows what the OKR is. Your bonus mm-hmm. is tied to it. Your boss's bonus is tied to it. It's mm-hmm. staring at you every day. Every experiment you're running is tied to it. We want to take that little itty bitty hour or two you have and have you invest in all the other things that actually help make it easier to hit that goal. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So you're essentially automating social, the soft skills for companies and stuff like that it's not really automating. It's just Mm -hmm. coaching to say, Hey, you need to talk about this. Like Uh when you have your one-on-one, we're helping managers take their notes. We're helping managers know what to ask by giving them suggested questions. Uh We are helping them remember the promises they kept and holding their team accountable to those promises by making it easier to create follow-up and hit them a couple different touch points to make sure that if you have something as an employee, you want to talk about, it's easy to bring up with your manager because we automate getting you ready for the meeting. We send you a nudge. Hey, Stuart, what do you want to talk about with Jason this week? And you can just Mm -hmm. reply to the email in line or reply in Slack and get it all set up. So we're just trying to remove points of friction and then automate steps of preparation and follow-up. Got it. So you found a workflow that most of these meetings happen with, and then you automated steps in that workflow to make it all run smoother. Correct. And in many cases, we're teaching managers that, hey, this is probably better than your current system. Why don't you try our approach? Mix in your personality and everything, but try our approach and you may see it go a little bit better than some of the things you were doing. Mm, Very cool. Yeah. And what was the biggest obstacle you've faced personally in starting this business? (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think it's just generally the stress of being a founder. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? What are are the stresses of being a founder? Uh... Hiring a team, dealing with being always understaffed for what you want to try and accomplish, um, feeling like you always only have one bullet in the chamber and like 20 targets to try to hit. Um, uh, personally, trying to balance the pressure internally to work every moment you're awake because you feel like it might move the ball a little forward and you'll feel guilty if you don't put in every bit of effort. Um, feeling the stress of the trade-offs of, um, you know, how you spend your time, you know, um, you know, the, the time I spent in Silicon Valley, you know, pretty much was all dedicated to this startup or the majority of the time was. 
And there were certainly a lot of things I sacrificed that I chose not to do. You know, a lot of people in SF travel a lot. I didn't mm. travel at all. Mm. Um, I never left the country while I was in SF. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of people that spent like six months in Asia and three months backpacking Europe and all that stuff. I, I pass on all of that to focus on the startup instead. Um, you know, so there was, there was a lot of stuff like that. There was also obviously the stress of seeing friends startups like take off like rockets and yours is kind of not going that fast. Mm. Like, you know, it's not even if you feel like um, envy, you can be very happy for your friends, but you can still look in the mirror and be like, am I working hard enough? Or mm -hmm. like, what am I doing wrong? Like, the, you know, there's a lot of things you can do looking in the mirror that make you, um, it, even if it's not always stress, just guilt or I don't know, embarrassment or just pressure mm -hmm. um, that can really, really start to wear you down or just affect how you feel. Mm. And how do you deal with that or how do you work with it? Uh, the biggest one for me has been health and fitness. So the, the better and better I've gotten my diet, and the, the better and better I've been consistent about exercise, both high intensity cardio. I like to play soccer and ultimate Frisbee mm -hmm. as well as going to the gym and picking heavy things up and putting them back down. Like those were game changers for me. The more I stuck to that routine, like I got to the point where basically, um, I was working out five days a week. And I noticed once I did that, I just felt better. You know, there were days where I was so stressed. I thought I was going to bounce off the walls and I would go to the gym and just throw all that stress into the weights. And I would feel like a God when I'd walk mm -hmm. out, you know, just completely different. All those workout endorphins just would, would help. And, you know, I'd go on the soccer field and that would be an hour where I wouldn't think about work at all. I was just thinking about playing. And mm -hmm. so that was a huge relief. Mm -hmm. Any meditation or anything like that? Have you tried any of that or yoga or anything? Uh, I tried meditation. Um, and I don't know why, but every time I've meditated, it, it, it brings on a severe migraine. So wow. I haven't touched it after the third time I did that to myself. Wow. I'm sure I'm doing something wrong or has something to do with my overactive mind. Uh -huh. but, uh, meditation hasn't been for me so far. Interesting. Did you work with a teacher or did you try, uh, do you try it on your own with that space? I essentially tried it on my own combined uh -huh. with like some meditation app and reading a couple of blog posts. Uh-huh. Cool. Um, if you have one kind of piece of advice for founders or managers uh, about how to manage their own stress or to manage the stress of their employees, what would it be? Uh, work really, really hard on your self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Because when you start to understand how you feel at given times and how you feel then affects other people, it can mm -hmm. really help. So for instance, something happens to you and it's super stressful, whether it's a personal thing or a professional thing. Um, and you have to go meet with your team or send an important update or something like in an hour. Um, if you have the self-awareness to realize that that's how you're feeling, you can get in front of that and you mm -hmm. can say, Hey, I'm really angry right now. Mm. You know, maybe, maybe you're pissed off at your boyfriend or girlfriend, or mm. maybe, um, maybe your boss just did something that just completely like, Oh, come on. Mm -hmm realizing that if you go into your next environment with your team feeling that way, you're going to bring all of those feelings with you. Mm. And that's going to be conveyed a bunch of different ways. First, it's subconscious, just the energy you bring to the room. But second of all, it's going to be the language you use. Mm. Um, and so one of the things I've learned kind of the hard way is that however I'm feeling at a given time will manifest itself in any text messages I send, yeah. any emails I write, all of those things the word choice will, will subtly shift and I won't even notice it until I read it later that like, I will choose different words. I will say things in a different style. Um, you know, I'll be maybe more pointed with people when I'm, when I'm upset versus when I'm happy, I'll be more relaxed or I'll wait. You know, it can be just simple things like 
do you send like three Slack messages in a row to somebody like pounding on something or do you mm. send one and you're chill enough to say, mm. you know what, let me wait and see if they respond. I know what the rest of what I want to say is. I'll write it down on the side, but I'm mm. wait for them to respond before I say something else. And meanwhile, for the employee, they have no idea that you have all this other stuff planned. All they see is that one line message that now is much more innocent and, and um, unharmful than mm. if you like hit them three times with something really aggressive. Mm. That's really, so that really self-awareness good. becomes powerful both for you to become a better leader um, and just understand your own emotions as well as then realizing how you affect other people. So then you could say, hey, I'm really stressed right now. You know what I really should do? I'm going to put my stuff down. I'm walking out the building. I'm going to get a coffee by myself. I'm going to just whoosh off for a moment mm-hmm. and come back. Or maybe you go meditate somewhere or mm-hmm. whatever you do that kind of can change your mindset, realizing and recognizing when you need to do that reset and then being aware of how you affect others just in every way is only going to help you become a better leader. Cause you'll start to understand how one person will respond to a certain style of your leadership and mm-hmm. another person won't respond to that. And you need to learn what they will respond to. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why it's so difficult to be a leader because you kind of essentially always have to take the high road or else you will lose trust basically. Um, I mean, I don't know. How would you define the high road? Let's make sure we're on the same page on that. Yeah. The high road essentially, uh, if, if somebody comes at, at you with a negative emotion or kind of this like attacking kind of thing, it's to yeah. center yourself and then respond, wait a minute and then respond basically. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it never, very rarely, very mm-hmm. rarely pays off. I won't say never. Mm-hmm. Uh, it rarely pays off to get emotional as a leader. I think the only times to get emotional as a leader is obviously if you want to be extremely positive and hype up your team, you know, mm-hmm. you guys crushed it. That was so awesome. I'm so proud of all of you. Look at these amazing results. Like obviously bring the emotion there. But yeah. from a negative perspective, I think the only times that you should do that is one when you need to do extreme corrective action. So let's say somebody in a meeting does something that's like totally chauvinistic or, um, you know, racist or like Mm -hmm. just something totally inappropriate, then you really should react. You should Mm -hmm. say, no, Mm -hmm. absolutely not. That's not acceptable on this team. We don't do that. We're going to talk more about this later, but I want to be clear right now. That's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. You need to demonstrate to the whole team that you take that seriously. Um, and so situations like that are certainly okay. Certainly if you were say in a big meeting, you were standing up for your team in front of other people, again, it would be okay to show emotion. But yes, certainly it doesn't help to have two people yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I love the old line from a Jay-Z song. You know, I make it a rule to never argue with fools because at a distance you can't tell who is who. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right. You want, you want to very rarely let yourself get too emotional mm-hmm. um, in front of your team. Now, that doesn't mean you won't feel those emotions. It just means that you don't let them control you. You don't let them manifest themselves in front of people. So mm-hmm. like if someone's really upset on your team, you try not to get upset with them. You try to help bring them down and say, cool, okay, I can see you're very upset about this. Let me make sure I fully understand what happened. Walk me through the scenario. Let's talk about this. Okay, great. <sighs> Take a breath. Teach them what you know about controlling your emotions. And then mm-hmm. you can start to say, cool, what can we do about this? Mm-hmm. Or here's what I think I'm going to do based on what I heard from you. Maybe I need to go talk to somebody to get their side of the story. Maybe mm-hmm. I need to go talk to HR because this is an HR level issue and it's my job to raise it to them. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it is, kind of like, calming them down, thinking clearly, and then, and then allowing that to seep into them as well and teach them some of the same tactics. Hopefully you're learning to, to handle that stress and and relax a little bit. That's really interesting. From all this that you're saying, it sounds like the job of a manager, at least part of that job is to be a coach or a therapist. Um, 
Coach, yes. I like to avoid being therapist though. Like it's not my job to help you get over your breakup with your significant other. It's not Mm -hmm. my job to deal with your mommy issues. It's not my job to um, deal with the fact that you had a horrible boss last time and now you're taking it out on me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think therapist uh, to me conveys a little bit more of like treatment of conditions. Mm -hmm. Coach though, the coach to me, a coach's job is to assemble the best possible team to accomplish a task and to bring out the best in everyone on your team. So I think the coach is a great example. I think therapists, that's where you always want to draw that line. You want to understand mm-hmm. your people. You want to understand their challenges. But when they face something like that, like I, I had somebody I managed once who had something very terrible happen in their personal life. And um, fortunately, they had the courage to come to me. And we had that trust that, you know, they were able to tell me what happened. And, um, you know, it was way above my pay grade. Mm-hmm. And so I literally was like, hey, I can't help you with this other than to say you have the full support of the company. You can take some time off to deal with this but you need to talk to professionals about this. And I mm-hmm. made sure by just nudging her and saying, Hey, do you need me to help you look up phone numbers and stuff, but made sure that they were able to then go and get the professional help they needed so that they would feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, you're not a licensed therapist and you shouldn't mm-hmm. feel like you have to be. That's at your, that's, that's the point where it's your job to refer them to go get the kind of help they need if they have yeah. that sort of issue. Yeah. Um, but as a coach, you're definitely trying to bring the best out of people, which is exactly what a good coach would do. You think about even a pro sports team, you know, someone on the team, like, you know, Kevin Love has talked about depression. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that when the um, Cavaliers were making their run with LeBron, that Tyrone Lue, their coach, was, you know, getting about his depression. Kevin Love's depression. He was probably yeah. more being like, hey, hey, dude, you make, you know, $21 million a year. Who are you talking to about this? I want you to go talk to someone good. And if you don't know someone, I will go to my coaching network and find out who knows a good sports psychologist mm-hmm. and we'll get you one. Because, like, I know, for instance, the Dallas Mavericks have a guy. I follow him on Twitter. It's at think to win I love the guy. He's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is literally the sports psychologist for the Mavericks, and every player is required to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I would say that like, there are other people to do those things, but you as a coach are there to hopefully help get people to go do other things that will help them personally that are well beyond your pay grade and responsibilities. What was his, what was his handle? Uh, at think to win. So T H I N K the number two and then W I N, um, I believe would be his handle. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I've noticed on your, on your website that you talk, that you said you guys learned a lot from Peter Drucker. What, uh, uh, is that how you pronounce his name? Peter Drucker? Yeah, yeah, Drucker. Yeah, Drucker and Andy Grove. I'm a big fan oh. of both of them. What was the biggest lesson that you learned from Drucker? Um, I think it's just like Drucker's matter of fact style is really helpful. He just cuts the chase. Like Andy Grove is great for pretty much just a bevy of tactics that are battle tested and definitely work. Much of our product literally is implementing the workflow he talks about in high output management. Mm-hmm. For Drucker, you know, I love the saying management is getting things done. Leadership is getting the right things done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that really cuts to the heart of what leadership really is because there's always more things to do than you have time. And so choosing wisely how you spend your time to make sure you achieve your goals is super important for leaders. And it's probably the biggest lesson Drucker has. Cause like, for instance, the effective executive is probably his most famous book. In addition to all the like, uh, Harvard business, uh, papers and stuff he's put out. Um, mm. but that idea of not just getting things done, but thinking about, are we working on the right things? Mm. Um, I think it's probably the most important lesson from Drucker. How do you know when you're working on the right things? <laughs> Uh, I think it depends, right? Like every job, 
Yeah, every job is different. I think this is one of the reasons actually that promoting from within is so powerful though, because uh-huh. if you've done the IC work before and now you're managing the team that's doing that IC work, it's much easier for you to understand the nuance of the work they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that's why it's important to do things like have one-on-ones. So you start to understand from your team what they're seeing. Because generally, if you're an individual contributor and you're working on something that isn't the right thing, that isn't a good thing to work on. Yeah, you'll feel Like you know it. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes you still have to do it because your boss told you to or your boss's boss or the OKR said so. Mm-hmm. And so as a leader, that's why it's so important to seek feedback and ask your team directly about this stuff because they'll come back to you and say, hey, I went out and started working with customers and they all hate this, but mm-hmm. they don't want this. They want this other thing. Can we build that instead? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, or you, you start to hear things from like, uh, you know, from different departments and, and like different roles, you'll, you'll hear these bits and pieces and it'll help you start to understand that, Hmm, are we, are we on the right track? Like if our end goal, the reason we set these numbers, these OKRs, is we want to grow the business, but we're finding out that that thing we thought was going to be the thing isn't the thing. We need to reassess those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is obviously time management matters. You know, I love the idea of Mark Twain's saying, um, swallow the frog. Mm-hmm. And so he's basically like, if you have a bunch of tasks to do during the day and one of them is to eat a frog, then you should do it first thing in the morning so you're sure you get it done. Yeah. And that way, that's got to be the worst thing that happens all day so the rest of your day is a lot better. Mm-hmm. So I have some friends whose company, literally it's one of their values where they're literally like in stand-ups, people talk about what their frog is every day so that they're sure they get the most important thing done every day. In addition to all the little things that quickly fill up a day, you know, email, Slack messages, uh, Slack DMs, Mm. uh, calls with Mm. customers, calls with colleagues. Like there's all these things can fill your day up really fast, but you need to make sure you get, get a few of the right things done. So like swallow the frog is another example of like one of those things that's like super powerful to make sure you do that. That's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got about five minutes left. What is one book that, or article or idea that you've come across in the last month that has uh, powerfully in fact impacted your ability to manage stress or to be more creative? Uh, I think that's an easy one. Um, I think you had Keith Ravoy on maybe to talk about this yeah. before. Uh-huh. The Upside of Stress is just uh-huh. such an amazing book. Uh-huh. Um, I, 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 it's funny, when I was in high school, I had friends that I thought were just as smart and just as hardworking as I was. And I wasn't the smartest person in school. Like I had some amazing valedictorians and stuff that are just like geniuses. Mm. So I was in kind of like the upper middle of the pack. And I had classmates who were like below me that I didn't really understand why. We studied just about as much. We seemed just about as smart, did a lot of the same things, but I always did better. And I always heard them say things like, I'm, I'm just not a good test taker. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because in, in the upside of stress, one of the things they talk about is, mind over matter is real. If you think stress is bad, it will literally be bad for you. That was so cool. And such like a mind, Mm -hmm. uh, mind exploding moment to say, Oh my, if I think stress is okay. And I always have, I've always been pretty big fan of stress other than when it like goes completely over the edge. Um, I've always thought the stress was good. I've always been a very good test taker. Um, and you know, in other places where I struggle to perform well, or struggled to have good poise. It was generally because I let myself get stressed and thought of it negatively. And as soon as I switched to it being positive, I started thriving in those same moments. And so it was really interesting to understand that literally when you think stress is good, the biochemistry of your brain and the chemicals released throughout your body Mm -hmm. are completely different than the exact same person in the exact same scenario who thinks stress is bad, releases different chemicals, now changes your performance. It's why Mm. one guy chokes on the free throw line and the other guy swishes it. Mm. It's why one person fails the test and the other person passes when they both studied together. Mm. Um, So I thought that was really powerful. And it was Mm. even cooler once you started to talk about like how it affects like uh, the elderly and how they, 
when you're retired, you need a certain level of stress in mm. order to continue to be happy with your life. Like some level of stress is actually good in your life. Mm. I thought all of those were fascinating and definitely on my mind because my parents just retired. I'm obviously going through stress of just like moving and things like that. And mm. then thinking back to my childhood and growing up, like there's all these different places where it applies. And that book just hit, hit on all of those. So I thought mm. it was really cool. I love that book. I've been recommending it to people all the time. Yeah, that was a very powerful book for me too. I had to, when, cause I got in a Twitter debate with Keith and then, uh, and then he agreed to be on the show. And then I read the book in between and I used the advice because that was my biggest podcast interview ever. So I used the yeah. advice to get to the podcast interview, be like, okay, this is not, this is not a threat. This is a challenge. And like, yeah. and it made it, it made it into one of the best interviews that I did, um, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, and th what you just said reminded me that I, I, I've experienced burnout. And I think I remember reading an article that you wrote on a blog post a long time ago about burnout. Can you talk about more about what your idea of burnout is? And sure. Where uh, yeah, absolutely. So there's this concept called learned helplessness. Mm. And I think that's the root cause of most burnout. So mm. the, hum the human condition, like we can endure a lot. We can survive a lot. Like if you think about Victor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about uh, man can endure any, any what if you give him a why. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's very true in a lot of scenarios, especially in the work world. If you're passionate about your work, you love your coworkers, boy, I've seen people put in some crazy hours and being okay with it. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, when you start to have things that are beyond your control, when you start to have things that frustrates you a lot. And when you start to be unhappy and you just say, this just isn't worth it. Um, in my experience, when I've either come close to burnout or fully burned out when this blog post is based on, it mm -hmm. was completely because there was a whole bunch of things beyond my control. And I felt like my values and the things I was doing every day were um, at odds with each other. And at that point, all of the energy that normally like, you know, my soul was just energizing me every day and made it easy to do suddenly came grinding to a halt. And so it was almost like instead of having this extra push in your back to go even faster, it was like something was dragging me and I was grinding my teeth to just get through a day. And that very quickly just took all my energy out of me and burnt me out. Mm. And so what I learned was when I burnt out, I reached out to a lot of friends and it turns out a lot of people very quietly have burnt out. No one wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, no one wants to talk about how much it hurts or the, um, the experience of it because it's debilitating. You know, I basically wasn't a functional, useful person for like three months. Mm -hmm. I was getting headaches if I looked at a screen for more than uh, a couple hours and, uh, you know, just couldn't focus like I used to. And I had mm -hmm. to like really recharge to do it. And when I talked to other people, the stories were there over and over again. And maybe we can add a link in your show notes. Um, I can, mm -hmm. I can give you the post again, sure. um, but like over and over again, talking to people, there was this consistent pattern of feeling like, you know, you were in a situation you weren't happy with and you tried to force yourself to continue to be in that situation. That's mm -hmm. when suddenly your energy levels just would get depleted because it was more about how much energy was coming back and replenishing you than mm -hmm. it was necessarily about a lot of times the output, unless you were on the extreme end where you just like, no one can work 120 hour weeks for two years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is really cool. So how can, how can people find you when, or Lighthouse? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet because my name is unique. Um, I'm mm -hmm. Addy Vanish on Twitter, which is just my last name. Uh, I have a blog. I haven't written in a while, but it has a lot of good evergreen content on mm -hmm. leadership and product management, jcdvanish.com. And of course, if you are somebody who is a manager and would like some help tuning up your skills to better engage your team, maybe you have some low morale you want to turn people around or you were rewarded by having your team double. So maybe you were great as a four person manager, but need help as an eight person manager, or you're just brand new to management. And you're like, I want to be as good a manager as I was in IC. Um, 
all those people are great for Lighthouse to help. It's just getlighthouse.com um, spelled properly, nothing weird. So just uh, getlighthouse.com. You can sign up for a free trial, or if you just want to learn about us more, just go to our blog, getlighthouse.com/blog. We have a ton of how-to content. Everything we've ever written is based on questions real managers have asked us, either inside the product uh, or sending us follow-up notes from a blog post. So it's all stuff that should resonate with you um, because it literally came from other people just like you. That is so cool. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. This was a really great interview. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks, have a great day. Thank you.